You know, if I need a hug, I will go downstairs and be like, John, your husbandly duties are required. That's today's guest, professional trombonist Jennifer Wharton, sharing one of her coping mechanisms when it comes to mental health. Welcome to Music Ed Insights. I'm Alan Fire here with Steve Shanley. Each episode, Alan and I talk with national thought leaders in music education with practical insights for K-12 music educators. Steve, tell us about our guest. Jennifer Wharton is a low brass specialist based in New York City and leads the trombone forward ensemble Bonegasm. She has held positions on Broadway with West Side Story, Porgy and Bess, and many other productions, in addition to performing with the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra, Dizzy Gillespie All-Star Band, and Woody Herman Orchestra. She's won the Radio City Christmas Spectacular Bass Trombone Chair five times, teaches at the collegiate level, and gives clinics and master classes regularly throughout the United States. What was the high point for you in this interview, Alan? Well, she had a few ideas for teachers who might struggle with mental health. And she had ideas for teachers who have students who struggle with mental health. And I think our listeners will find those helpful. How about you, Steve? Yeah, exactly. I think there's something here for all listeners. If you find yourself not feeling so great, especially as we deal with these unprecedented challenges that teachers are facing, you'll appreciate knowing you're not alone. Someone as successful as Jen Wharton also doesn't feel so great quite a bit of the time, in fact. And if you're one of the lucky teachers who's feeling okay right now, you'll get some insight on the challenges that some of your students are facing. She does remind us that sometimes we idolize people and we idealize people and we got to remember they are just people and to remember it's okay to not be okay. Let's get to this powerful conversation. Jennifer Wharton, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So you have an amazing resume as a musician. You're happily married to a super, super cool dude, and you live in one of the greatest cities in the whole world. And yet, sometimes you don't feel so great, and you are among the increasing numbers of those people who are comfortable saying, yeah, I don't feel so great. What are some of your earliest memories when things seemed fine on the outside, but not on the inside? I was pretty young. I firmly believe and as an adult that I'm, I don't think my parents should have had kids. <laughs> and it's not that, you know, I wasn't mistreated in any way, but I don't, I just don't think that they were well equipped to have kids. So there was just a, a you know, there's some like holes, I would say, just in my emotional upbringing. As an adult, it's, you know, it's easier to look back on, on sort of my upbringing and see like, yeah, I wasn't really nurtured, you know? Um, and it's most evident when, when you look at my musical life, because my parents did not want me to play music. They actively discouraged it. When I really decided to become a musician and really put all my eggs in that basket, they were not supportive. While on the outside, because I did succeed, it looks good and everything's happy. My parents like what I do now. I still, to this day, feel so bad for the young Jen that just wanted to feel like someone supported her, you know? It's really hard. It's hard to deal with because she's still in there. I still carry her around and she's still wounded and bruised and everything but but you know not physically so it, it's hard to when you start to talk about the mental stuff it's not like you have bruises you can show about how how sad you are it's just you're sad and then to do what we do 
people don't want to hear that you're sad. <laughs> you know, they want to hear, oh, everything's great. And you just kick some dirt um, over it and move on. Well, when did you feel brave enough to tell people that you didn't feel so good? You and I are about the same age. And, and when we were in high school, this was still not really something that was viewed with a whole lot of widespread respect as being a problem. When did you feel comfortable enough to start saying either to some friends or, or teachers or like, yep, everything might look okay, but I'm struggling inside? After having been in therapy for a while, and it was pretty intense therapy for about a year, um, realizing that nothing good happens from hiding. Like shame loves, you know, to be hidden. It loves the dark. And many of the things that I've felt ashamed of and just still do feel ashamed of, whether it's my playing or personally, or any of those things, if I just let them out for some light, I can realize that, okay, I'm not really, it's not really that big of a deal. It's not, it's not as hard as I think it is. It's just, it's a lot harder facing things on your own. So if you can shed light on it, then, then maybe it'll help somebody else. That's kind of where it started. And I think it started like posting on Facebook, honestly. Yeah. I, I, I remember how much fun you and John, your spouse had in the early days when everybody was all locked down back in, in mid 2020. Um, what was it? A question of the day with John <laughs> yeah. Fedchuk from, from Shay Fedchuk. Fedchuk. <laughs> yeah, there was so much fun with that. And you do that, you post cocktail recipes. And I remember ad adopting some of those. It was so much fun. You, you know, you bring joy to people through your music making, but then you also brought joy to people when you couldn't make music for a living by, by doing that stuff. It was really cool. And then you got really quite real in one post where you said something about how hard it was to keep it up sometimes. Do you, do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. I, sometimes I feel that way. Um, cause I'm a people pleaser, you know, I'm, I enjoy performing in all ways. And, and, um, I think, you know, I enjoy making people laugh. It's, it's one of, it's something that's like an early form of therapy for me was to make people laugh. And, um, but quite often, you know, I'd come home and I'd be a zombie cause I'd be so exhausted. It was like, um, a suit I had to put on to go out into the world to, you know, I was like, well, people will only like me if I'm this happy go lucky person and people quite often are were shocked to find out that I deal with depression and it's because I hide it you know no one wants to hear that you're sad all the time you said no one wants to hear that you're sad all the time I think some people struggle with well I I know I'm supposed to let someone know or let people know or not be ashamed of it but I also don't want to be like that person who's just always, you know, posting on social media and being depressed and people will, you know, not follow me anymore, stop paying attention. Do you think about that balance? Is that a conscious thing? Because I would say I'm not on social media nearly as much as Alan is, but my understanding from talking to people is like you have somehow threaded the needle perfectly of still being being very open about all of this, but it isn't like, oh, Jen posted again. This is this is going to be depressing. Are you thinking about that stuff at all? I do. I do. Because for me, I want my social media to reflect. I want it to either entertain or make people laugh, like in general. That's what I want to do. 
I, I do get a lot of feedback from people when I post these things that are, that's really me, you know, yeah, all the silly stuff is me too, but, but the emotional stuff when I get serious and people really appreciate it. So I do, if I'm feeling something very strongly, I will post about it. And I, I try to really think about how to write about the things that I'm feeling without making it seem like poor me because I, I'm a lucky person. I'm married to someone awesome. Like you said, I have a pretty good career and I'm very lucky, but it doesn't mean that other stuff isn't wrong. And quite often, you know, I would meet musicians that are far more successful than I am and they're miserable too. And someone should talk about this. <laughs> I think that is something in our culture and one of my favorite sports personalities that I listen to, one of the things he helped me realize is it is possible to be rich and unhappy. It's possible to be famous and unhappy and successful and unhappy. And we as a society, I think, are so conditioned to think, well, you're beautiful and successful. You don't have a right to be unhappy. And kind of hearing him over the years give different spins on that message has been helpful. But I still feel like that is not mainstream thought. It is, well, you have something good that I don't have. Therefore, you don't have the right to be unhappy. How could you possibly be unhappy? And it's interesting to hear you talk about the musicians with maybe even more successful careers than yours who are also struggling with that sort of thing as well. Do you ever have anyone just say that to you? Like, oh, suck it up. You're fine. You're lucky. Oh, yeah. Don't complain. Yeah. I was at work and I was just kind of telling somebody that I was down and I had been down for a while and they were like, oh, you just got to snap out of it. And I want to punch him in the face. It's not helpful. It's not helpful at all. And that's kind of how I was parented. Like, oh, you just got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, you know, take care of business. And that's was, you know, what happens when you can't do that. And that's kind of when I talk about my mental struggles. That's those are the people who I'm talking to that don't see a way out of this this hole that they're in, because I find myself in that hole all the time. Did any of your teachers see this in you? You talked about how from the outside it, it looked pretty good, but did you have any teachers that you were tight enough with who, who saw that? I think my teacher in um, New England Conservatory did. We were super close at the time, Doug Yo and I. I don't think he and I talked about mental health, but I think he did know that I was not in a healthy place. And he was like, you gotta get in a healthy place. <laughs> you know, you can't punch stands anymore. <laughs> Were there things that he did to like accommodate or make it safe for you or create a space for that with you? He definitely made it safe. And I think uh, what what made me feel safe, I don't even know if it was a conscious thing he, he chose to do, but he had a daughter that was around my age that also played bass trombone. So it was it was a little like fatherly in some ways, even though it, it wasn't it wasn't inappropriate in any way. <laughs> Um, and it wasn't that he was talking down to me as, as a father might, but it felt, it felt like a very safe space for me to be me there. And, you know, I, I'm sure I cried in lessons and whatever. And I never felt like, I didn't really feel, I don't remember feeling embarrassed at all by those emotions. Um, whereas like if it had happened in front of friends and stuff, I probably would have at the time. But yeah, it, I did feel safe there. Um, and that wasn't the case when I went to, well, the first time I tried to uh, start my master's, I had a, a really bad scene with a teacher 
which um, that's another thing that I don't think is talked a lot about in music in terms of mental health is that we we idolize these these musicians, but they're just people. They're just people. And this guy that I went to study with was a raging alcoholic. If I had known that going in, I might have not... I might not have let him like affect me in such a way that he did, but you know, he said a few things to me and, and I literally almost quit playing the trombone. I, it, it was a nightmare of a scene for me. I never finished my master's at that point. Um, I'm finishing it this May. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it was like 20 years where I basically swore off all orchestral music and, um, and refused to finish my master's. I, I swore I was never paying to play music again. So uh, it was not a safe place. And and people don't talk about that enough, that these, these people that we revere are just humans and they're flawed. So our listeners are, are mostly teachers and they are either checking this episode out because they are thinking, yeah, I struggle with some of this stuff too. What advice do you have? What you know, or, or just I'd like to hear someone else talk about struggling with this so I can feel like I'm not alone. And then there also might be some teachers who don't struggle with this, but want to make sure they are making things okay for their students. And I, I find myself in this situation with my own students where I know I'm supposed to create a safe space, but I also am not trained to deal with some of this either. So as music teachers who were not trained to identify or solve these problems, do you have some either recommendations of things not to do, like, well, like not be an alcoholic would be helpful, I guess, um, or things that they can do in terms of helping out their students in a way that maybe doesn't cross a boundary and doesn't require six years of going to graduate school? Yeah. <laughs> For me, what, what I try to do is just, I talk about my mental struggles in relation to music, like both when I was a kid and what, what it still is. You know, I tell them when I get nervous. I tell them that I still get nervous. I tell them what has helped me to attack some of these problems when it feels like they're insurmountable. And I, I try to always make sure that they know that there's an open door, you know, if they do need to talk about something that is outside the realm of music, I'm here and I will get them to the right place. And I feel like if they hear me talking about it, then they won't be as scared to talk about the stuff that they're facing. So I, I feel like I'm trying to lead by example. And Alan and I would most certainly agree with that. We were texting each other over, I think it was over the winter break, and he had seen something you had posted, and, and we were remarking just how refreshing it was, because oftentimes the approach seems to be sort of a, a, a toxic positivity of just, oh, no, just wish it to be better, and you'll be better. And that, that kind of seems to be the thing nowadays. Dream it and do it, and it'll just be there for you and yours for the taking. And I, I gather from from this talk and from from things we've seen you post, you you might be annoyed with that approach as well. Extremely. And way before I, it even had a name, I think <laughs> um, I can remember a handful of people, you know, coming up that were definitely toxic positivity. And for me, it just it just feels so not authentic. You know, be real with me. And real is not always good. And if you're sitting there smiling all the time, that is not true. 
people are not that happy all the time. So whether someone's hiding behind, you know, sometimes it's religion or sometimes it's motivational speakers or, you know, someone has been to one too many of these meetings and, and they just have a smile plastered on their face all the time. That's not real. That's one of the things I've really enjoyed being in New York is that for the most part, New York is, especially riding the subway, 100% real all the time. You know, it's just like, you do you, I'll do me, just don't talk to me. Early in my career, I was a perpetrator of toxic positivity and a student came to me once and said, I don't trust someone who's as happy as you are all the time. And I said, I'm not happy all the time. I just act that way because that's what people need. And she said, not me. And, and that left a mark. It didn't cure me right away, but that was a really high achieving, very real person. And it was, it was helpful. It's always painful when you're in your you know, late twenties and you're learning from a 16 year old that it was cool. How do you do it? You do such a good job of being real without being needy. I think that that's the way I'd put it. You do a great job of being real without being needy. What is it about you that you really nail that balance? I mean, sometimes I do feel needy. I have to be honest, but I try to ask the appropriate people to help me when when I'm needy. You know, if I need a hug, I will go downstairs and be like, John, your husbandly duties are required. Please hug me now. <laughs> I will tell you that often on gigs, especially like I, I started subbing at the ballet recently. And I, I talked about not playing in, in an orchestra for a long time. And here I was playing in a proper orchestra and I felt super needy, but I tried to sit there and go, okay, all I have to do is make it through this gig without taking a dump on stage. So I can tell people that I'm uncomfortable. I don't have to talk, you know, endlessly about how uncomfortable I am, but I can say, you know, it's been a minute. That's real. And in doing that, it kind of helps me not do that on repeat in my head. Because I tell this to my students all the time, when you start talking to yourself, you're listening. And I think part of it for me, the when I see maybe a post that you make, I feel like, and I don't know if this is what you were saying, Alan, but that it isn't a post that is there with the explicit purpose of, okay, I'm putting this out here because I need a lot of people to comment and tell me that they love me. I sort of feel like the post itself, it did what it needed to do. And then whatever happened after that, like you were not checking your phone every couple of seconds to see who, who was interacting with it or not. And if that's true or not, you know, I don't know, but that's how it how it reads to me. And I think that might be another reason why Alan and I were sort of drawn to this as being a healthy way of saying, yep, I don't feel so good. It's okay if you don't feel so good. I'm just putting this out here. I'm not looking for you all to give me a big group hug. Yeah. And sometimes I have to say that. I'm like, look, I'm not, you know, I, I was kicked off of a band recently, unceremoniously. I found out, oh yeah, you just didn't hire me for a gig. But a couple weeks before that, I had actually made a post because this had come up in conversation about being kicked off bands. I'm like, yeah, it happens to me, you know, um, and and just kind of putting that out there. And I don't need people to tell me I'm not alone. I know that. Um, but I'm telling other people that they're not alone. So I, I that's my goal. And I'm glad it comes across that way. 
Any ideas for our listeners who are like me, who aren't really into posting stuff? Um, what, what types of things do you do besides uh, asking John for a hug? That, uh, so not, not hugs from husband and not posting on social media that you find helpful for you. I would say what helps me is trying to focus on being where I am when I am there. And I'm terrible at this. I literally had some success with it last week for the first time. I'm one of those people that cannot relax on vacations because I'm always worried about the other things that I need to do. In fact, the last time I was at the beach, I was bawling because I was worried about all the other things that I wasn't doing. In fact, I have a list sitting right next to me of the things that I need to do. But last week, I just gave myself permission to just do what I was supposed to do that week and just be there. And it was like being on vacation for the first time in my adult life. <laughs> just being able to be where I was made me play better. But yeah, so I, I would say one, being able to cut out the phone when you know it's time to cut out the phone, being able to be present with the people that you're with, whether it's musically or personally, and then setting a timer if you have to do a thing you don't want to do, um, set a timer. You can do anything for 20 minutes. If you spend 20 minutes doing the thing you don't want to do at the end of the week, you're, it's 140 minutes you spent, right? And at the end of the year, it's the answer is math. But um, <laughs> moving forward, these baby steps moving forward pay off. Those are good. So I'm just curious, over the course of, say, a whole year's worth of time that you are awake and conscious... Can you do like a pie graph for me of percentage of time where you're like, I'm kicking butt right now. I feel great. Everything's firing on all cylinders or like, yeah, yep, things are fine. Not great. Not bad. Or like, yep, I really don't feel good right now. So I would say I warned my husband about this when we got married. I was like, I am not a happy person. I'm going to be unhappy half the time. And that is probably still true. Half the time I am worried, I am anxious, I am sad. And you know, medication helps, alcohol helps. <laughs> not always, but uh, not, not the, at the rate I was drinking in the first part of the pandemic. I would say probably 10% I feel awesome and the 40% I feel good enough. And my goal is to, every day, I want to feel like the best outcome for me is if I can sit there and go, today didn't suck. Um, and that's just kind of the way my makeup is. I don't want to be, I don't want to have anything too good because I'm always worried about it being taken away. Well, and don't you think, too, this is a product of the social media age, too, where pretty much most people are posting the very best things in their life. Yes. So... I, I feel like before social media became so prevalent, it was okay to just feel average. Like no one was really upset about feeling just average. In fact, they were okay with that. And then we just started to see this, well, this person's life is great and they're on this vacation and they're traveling here and eating this good food. And, and I just, and then all of a sudden average started to feel like it wasn't good enough. That was my take on it. Yeah. And some like consider where your average is. I've known for a long time that, that I deal with depression. And so I, it, I definitely agree. People post their highlight reel for everyone to see on social media and I like to post my lowlights, you know, um, I like to talk about the gigs that suck or, you know, maybe on this one piece, I 
I only played four notes and that was my, my day. Maybe I didn't practice in the last two days, you know, and, and talking about that and talking even pointers about what I'm working on. Cause quite often as a freelancer, I don't practice like I did when I was in school. So I practice for what I have to play instead of what I have to work, what I should be working on. <laughs> and that's a reality talking about that reality of being a freelancer and talking about, well, how do I get my face back in shape for something immediately when I haven't been practicing how I should. And I, all that stuff, I feel like people are interested in because it happens to them. It does. And not just for the professional musicians. And I think that's why people are drawn to what you do and what you have to say, because they can be thinking in my own job, it's the same thing for teachers. There are all sorts of things that you learn to do, you should be thinking about, but also at the end of the day, you kind of need to do just a good job with the task that's going to be at hand tomorrow. And that's liberating to hear maybe someone from another profession talk about it that way and say, yeah, we can't solve every problem every day. And just like you can't do all of the practice every day, you sometimes have to prioritize. Yeah. And I think it's been liberating also to have someone in your position uh, of success and, and everything that you have done to be able to say those things and, and say, and sometimes it doesn't go well and that's okay and I'm still here today and I'll be here tomorrow. And, and I know I've appreciated that and, and my, my friends and family who follow you have, have appreciated that as well. Well, Jen Warden, thank you for being here today to discuss these important topics with us and make all of us feel maybe a little bit more okay about ourselves. Are you ready to close down with the lightning round on some lighter questions? Hell yeah. Best restaurant in New York City. The one that delivers the fastest. Yeah. <laughs> but I will say the, the best restaurant in my neighborhood is uh, Hinomaru, which is a ramen place. I just cannot quit them. But the most expensive, amazing meal I've had is Blue Hill at Stone Barns, which is uh, a little north of the city, but incredible. Is there a musical or a big number from a musical that you'd be perfectly happy if you never had to play it again? It, this is both a blessing and a curse. I literally forget music that I've played. In fact, I know the first note of Beautiful the Carol King musical is a G on tenor trombone, but I could not play you anything from that show right now. And I played it for four and a half years. My mind is like a sieve. Music falls out of my mind. It's a blessing in that way because I don't ever care if I play things a million times, but it's a curse because when you start to try and learn tunes, just falls right out of there. <laughs> is there a musician or composer that you wish more people knew about? I would say just overall, female uh, musicians and composers. I feel like their stories are not told as much or or as in-depth as some of the male composers. Female trombonist here, Melba Liston. I didn't hear about her until I was embarrassingly old. Give us a book recommendation that doesn't have anything to do with music. I was reading Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Big Magic. It just talks about the creative process, which is pretty interesting. And uh, most controversial for you there in New York, Yankees or Mets? I 
literally don't care. I <laughs> I like the 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 uh, the uniforms for baseball makes all their butts look cute, and that's probably more important to me. Yeah, but the Shea State or City Field is closest to me because I live in Queens, so I guess it would have to be Mets. Have to be Mets. Yeah. All right. Cool. Uh, Jennifer, you said earlier, hey, you know, we idolize some musicians, but we got to remember that they're just people. You're so gracious today. You're gracious online. You're gracious as a human being. And you're a hell of a songwriter. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I love it. I love everything you put out with Bogasm. And just your songwriting is great. Your performance is great. And you're just people. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Music Ed Insights. Please support this podcast by subscribing, rating, and reviewing it. We want to make this as thoughtful and practical as possible. Please send us your ideas for guests and suggestions for improvement. You can do that through our website, www.musicedinsights.com. You can also reach us on our Facebook page, Music Ed Insights, or via Twitter, at Music Ed Insights. Our website is also the place to find program notes, links, and a one-page download of this episode's key takeaways. That's www.musicedinsights.com. This podcast is sponsored and supported by Normal Design, Winterset Websites, Group Dynamic, and the Co-College Music Education Program. Learn more about them at our website. And let us know if your business or organization would like to join that list. New episodes drop every two weeks on Monday mornings. Get current. Stay relevant. Music Ed Insights.